I always say I'm, I'm sort of a, a risk-taking marketer, and I think a lot of people probably agree with that. And I don't think it's a bad thing. You're never always going to get it right. If you're planning to go down the artistic route and you just want to try something out, maybe for whatever reason you don't have data to begin with, but once you launch it, you will, right? And I often find that can be super valuable, assuming, you know, it doesn't all go to hell. Hello, and welcome to the FinTech Marketing Podcast, bringing you insights and ideas from the world's leading financial service marketers. I'm your host, Eric Fulweiler, CMO of 11FS. I'm on a mission to learn how the world's hottest FinTech startups and most innovative financial service brands drive growth through modern-day marketing. Today's guest is Chad West, Director of Marketing and Communications at Revolut. Welcome, Chad. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for making the time. Um, so let's just go real quick, kind of like Chad West, Director of Marketing and Communications at Revolut. Give us the quick, for people listening to this, there probably aren't many who don't know, quick overview of your role and quick overview of Revolut. Yeah, for sure. So um, I've been at Revolut for uh, three years now. Um, and in that time, my responsibility has been um, essentially turning Revolut from an unknown brand um, into uh, one of the biggest uh, financial uh, technology brands. Um, I'd, I'd go as far as say in the world now, hopefully. Um, so in that time, it's been the case of putting sort of a full strategy together, covering full suite marketing and full suite communications, um, sort of building the and scaling the processes and operations around that. Um, and then, of course, hiring sort of a top caliber team to help us not only execute, but scale uh, as we move into um, multiple new markets. So um, it's been an exciting journey. I think um, three years ago, we were around about somewhere between 100 and 150,000 customers. Um, and then obviously fast forward to today, uh, we're, now, we're now over 8 million customers, um, which is quite remarkable uh, to do so. So, And in terms of Revolut, I mean, um, essentially what we're trying to do at Revolut is build a one-stop shop, right? I think it's, it's not about building, um, you know, the next Metro Bank or a UK-based bank. It's very much about building a platform where people um, can get access to all a suite of different financial services, um, all within a trusted, secured uh, platform at the best possible rates. Um, so obviously that goes beyond giving people account details and budgeting tools, but equally um, a, f a full sort of FX function allowing them to hold and exchange currencies, spend and transfer money overseas um, at the real exchange rate. And then certainly in more recent times, we've launched features such as the ability to buy and sell cryptocurrency uh, and a commission-free stock trading platform. So uh, that's a, a gist and uh, plenty more to come. Yeah, you all have been busy over the last few years. Uh, you mentioned financial technology companies. Is that purposefully how you refer to yourself as Revolut? <sighs> No, I, I guess. I mean, ultimately, unlike other brands like Monzo's and Starlings, Revolut is not a bank, right? So it's always hard when you get pushed into that bracket and mm. immediately everyone just refers to Revolut as Revolut the Challenger Bank. Um, and we've always sat there and think, well, how do we really define ourselves? How do we sort of stand up uh, and stand out from a crowd? So I think that's, for me, the easy way of explaining what we are. We are a financial technology company. Um, but more importantly, we dig deeper into sort of what our mission is and it becomes a little bit more clear for people. And I think what's interesting now is when I speak to a lot of people, um, they're making sort of less references to Revolut being the same as Monzo, Starling and N26, but thinking, oh, so kind of like WeChat you're, and Grab, you're trying to absorb sort of different functions uh, into your platform. Um, and I think that's an interesting concept for me because that's certainly uh, where I see how we differentiate personally um, than others in the market. But, so more on the technology end of the spectrum from a brand perspective than the bank end of the spectrum. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, cool. Um, so building on that, let's hear about what's your favorite brand in financial services that obviously is not your own. So this has just recently changed. Um, I've always sort of plugged um, 
you know, a few different names out there in the past, but only in the recent months have I come up with a new company that's got me most excited. And I think I've been a bit of a fangirl on Twitter and and and, and screaming and shouting about them. But it's uh, it's fronted. I thought you were going to say Eleven FS. Sorry, <laughs> they're my second favorite. Um, but no, it's fronted, which um, is obviously founded by you know yeah. former Monzo and and Jamie former and Simon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. Not only do I believe in them as, as as individuals, and I know their capabilities, and I think they'll you know they're the kind of people that can execute and really build, but they're genuinely solving a really big problem. Um, I mean, I remember when I first came to London, um, I, I barely had you know a hundred quid in my bank account. Um, I was re- super naive. I remember coming down here and saying, "God, the rents are quite expensive, but I can afford a month up front." And then being told, "Oh, we'll also need eight, six or eight weeks deposit on top of that." And I was like, you know, respectfully, where the fuck am I finding 1500 quid from? Um, and, and it was a challenge and I had to like borrow money off someone. It was really stressful. Um, and, and, you know, I, I always say I, I joined Revolut and I mean this. I, I, the reason I joined Revolut um, and not a bigger company that was paying more and all the rest of it is because I truly disliked traditional banks. I disliked the structure. I disliked the system. It was everything about it. And this is probably my, 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 my second least favorite industry, which is the rental market, which I think just prices people out. Particularly, I think it's fine if you come from a, a middle-class background and, you know, mum and dad are happy to pop some money in your account. And quite right. I'm just jealous I didn't get that, right? But um, how are, you know, young working-class people supposed to come to the city and get their first break um, when immediately they're financially burdened? So I think these guys offering people, pay people's deposits up front for them to pay it back in bite-sized chunks and, and hopefully at a very competitive and, and humane interest rate on top um, will be something that will benefit a huge amount of people. So I'm super excited by them. I'm trying to always find out more information and dig, but um, they're keeping it pretty under wraps. Yeah, yeah. And you've got, in terms of your background, you've got a pretty amazing story and a different journey to where you are in the world of financial services and fintech than, than a lot of people. So we'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah. You're referring to the, was it the Business Insider article? Yeah. Up? yeah. So um, I've, look, I've always, I've never really spoken about it. Um, and even when I did speak about it, I, I felt like, God, am I going to sound like one of these like failed X, X Factor contestants who has a sob story and wants everyone to feel sorry for them? Um, and it wasn't the case. I think I didn't speak about it when I was younger because I went to a, a fairly good school in a middle class area and I would have stood out like a sore foot and, 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 and you know, the bullying would have continued. And I think as I got older, um, I just didn't feel the need to speak about it. I was like, I'm not special. I'm not different. And ultimately, I don't want people feeling sorry for me. Um and then it was only when I met someone who reached out to me, who's um, a kid from a sort of similar background. I know him through someone um, and he's going through the same thing. And he was like, I just need a break. I need someone to open that door. And, and someone opened that door for me. And I was able to get that first name on my CV. I was able to start my career. Um, and, and it probably wouldn't have been possible um, or at least as easy as it was um, without that. So it sort of encouraged me to speak up a little bit about it. And I didn't proactively go out there. I actually had a a journalist who reached out to me and said, um, you know, do you have anyone at Revolut who comes from this kind of background? And I was like, well, I guess you're talking to him, right? So I think it's, look, it's a sucky situation. No one wants to be brought up in, you know, extreme poverty and then go through the the care system um, and all the rest of it. it, it you know, it, it's shit. Um, but I don't look back. I don't, have, I don't have pity for myself. I don't feel sorry for myself. I don't think I'm special. There's, you know, thousands, if not you know, more kids out there in a, in a similar situation, right? And I think when I look back in it, it's, it's, for me, it's more, I, I see it as a strength. 
I, I wouldn't have the strength that I have today. I wouldn't have the mental capacity that I that I have today, and I certainly wouldn't have the ambition um, that I have today had I not experienced that background. So, um, you know, I, my background, I was lucky to then overcome that. I got my first break in politics um, where I was sort of doing sort of comms and policy stuff. Um, I won't say who uh, around the political side. Um, did that for a couple of years um, then went, decided I really wanted to go into tech. Um, uh, got my first break uh, uh, Rocket Internet, um, working on a brand there that was super exciting, helping to build and scale that to um, 14 markets around the world. Um, and then uh, after spending uh, three years there, um, was poached by Revolut. And it was interesting because when I first, someone reached out to me with no profile picture, like a weird, like a super weird name, not a first name, not a surname, just the first name on their LinkedIn, like, hey, have you heard of Revolut? Do you want to come work for us? I was like, what? Um, and I remember at the time I wanted to break into fintech and I even think I was like actively applying to like Monzo and TransferWise because these guys were known, right? Um, and I went into Revolut. I remember I sat down. It was three hours. I met like seven people. Um, and I was just blown away. I was like, sure, you know, they haven't got a brand. They haven't really raised much yet. But as soon as I met Nick, our founder, and I listened to his vision, it was just incredible how it was, you know, he, he had thought this through from point to point. He knew exactly what he was doing, which markets he was going to, which products needed to come beyond this. He, he was able to say, here's where we are now and here's where we're in five years. And I think on top of that as well, he, he values people, right? He, he was able to sit there and be like, this isn't an environment where you're going to be completely controlled. You'll have freedom. You'll be able to really come in and make an impact and, and, and do things your way. Um, we're open to making mistakes as long as we learn from them. So, and I think when, you, when you're looking at a manager or a boss, generally, that's, that's what you want to hear, right? Because I find the most creative people don't always get things right. They'll make mistakes, but it's, they learn more from their mistakes than they do from their success. Um, so yeah, I'm probably blabbing on, but that's uh, that's an overview. No, it's great, and and I just want to say, I mean, you know, obviously, it's it's when it comes to your background, it's your story, your words, totally understand or can try to understand um, kind of how you decide what you do and don't talk about with that. But one person's opinion, I think, there's probably a lot of people out there, even with just that one business insider article, that had the potential for that to really impact them in a positive way. Just hearing the success of your story and where you've gotten to, starting from there. So, so I really respect it. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about what's going on in the world of marketing at Revolut. What is, how would you define like your philosophy on marketing and what's the high-level strategy that you're implementing at Revolut right now? Yeah, I, I always feel awkward answering this question because it sounds super generic, the response. And ultimately, the term I'm going to use has just been used and abused by so many companies. And it's just adopting a customer-centric approach. Everything that we do when I'm involved in the product, when I'm involved in the general comms that's going out externally, the one question I ask anyone in the team, anyone in the company is, do customers want this? Do we have the data to show that we're going to solve a problem? When we're communicating this, is it about the customer and the problems we're trying to solve? And when you follow, I mean, we, we, we've got a very loyal and very integrated customer base in the company who are constantly telling us what they want us to build next. And, and, the pro and we always look to base that on the data. But I find there's so many companies who have said this crap, like we're customer obsessed, we're customer centric, and it's just PR. Yeah, it's such a buzzword. It's these such days, a right? buzzword. And then when they get to an inevitable size of scale, they may have been customer centric, you know, for one, two years, and then suddenly there's new people coming in, there's new board members, and everything's about money, everything's about profitability. And, and of course, those matters are really important, but you completely sacrifice what made you a loved brand and a successful company in the first place. So I think for me, the most important challenge, I think we've done a pretty good job, Revolut, of um, really 
ensuring that when we're building products, it's based on data that customers want. The way we communicate it, we're pointing at what the problems are and how we can solve them. Um, even when there's customers who aren't maybe necessarily interested in a certain feature or product, we're still able to communicate with them in a way that may actually, it may actually interest them. They just haven't felt so previously because of the way that traditional banks promote this feature or this service. So that's the sort of key thing for me. And um, I know that's quite a simplistic answer, um, but that, that ethos is now so deeply, deeply ingrained in the team that the one question, and I love it when I can sit back in meetings and just listen and people are saying like, do people actually want this? Why are we communicating this when there's no mention of the customer and why this is good for them? It basically sounds like it's good for us. And it's about sort of articulating that into everything um, that you do. So, and, and I, as I said, like my biggest fear is that companies eventually lose sight of what that is and what that means and they forget that you know they're built on community they're built on trust they're built on transparency so my sort of focus going forward is ensuring that no matter how many countries we scale to how many, how big we become from a customer base um that that is always at the heart of what we do um and it's never an easy task certainly when you, you hit a certain scale but i think if you're able to build the right processes internally if you're able to hire the right people to lead different functions not just here in the uk but in other countries as well um it, it can be scaled right and and it's also a constant education of senior management as well and ensuring that you know when you're speaking to them when you're presenting to them um that this ranges from investors to everyone you're, you're, you're constantly reminding them the fact that look this is our focus yeah uh, it's that whole thing of people need to be reminded more than they need to be told and, and i yeah. think sometimes the best answers and usually the best strategies are the ones that are simple mm-hmm. because you need especially when you're talking about the scale of an organization like yours you need that simplicity to be able to get everybody on board and aligned and it's more the execution of it because a lot of people like you said might have that strategy when it comes to marketing of being customer centric but where you differentiate yourself is actually on the execution of it and having that clarity and alignment and cohesion yeah. of the teams internally to be able to do that so how how are you thinking about because obviously you're going through a period of massive scale hyper growth how are you thinking about keeping that staying true to kind of that very simple clear customer-centric strategy as you're going into new markets and hiring new people and and building the brand uh, in such significant ways in different places? Yeah, I think one thing we've done internally is very much build a playbook uh, that's used as sort of a Bible internally. And so that when we hire new people, I mean, what we often do as well is we don't just hire brand new people in new markets. We always make sure we send over a couple of experienced people who've been in the company a long time to sort of kick those markets off, lead on the hiring uh, lead on the onboarding and then focus on the strategy with them. So I think that's super important to have that, you know, to have those sort of voices there. Um, but we've built a solid playbook that covers sort of all aspects of, of from product to, to general product to, to marketing to communications to ensure that here's what we know works, here's what we know doesn't work, here's the data, but there's equally an opportunity for us to try things new. I think one thing you have to realize as well is that you can't apply a one-size-fits-all to every market. So me saying, guys, here's a playbook, implement it, job done, isn't the case. So this isn't necessarily like you need to follow this step-by-step, but here's a great starting point, and we're pretty convinced that this strategy from, say, a comms perspective will work really well in the US. But from a product perspective, we need to rethink. And I think that's been a great learning course for us is, you know, the US is obsessed with, with credit and points. Um, and and that's you can say it's a good thing, but it's equally a bad thing, right? I I personally don't like the idea of people being reliant on credit, um, particularly uh, you know non-affluent people. Um, so I think for us, we had to really look at the product and say, well, do you know what? Revolut will be a great prospect in the US from a travel perspective. You know, it's got multi-currencies, it's got uh, you know fee-free spending abroad, but then ultimately. 
a lot of Americans don't travel. Um, or they do, but not outside of the US. So how big is actually the, the market they're going to be? And then we started to drill it down and think, well, okay, we still need to make sure this is super clear and we want to be the number one product that people use when they think I'm sending money abroad and traveling abroad. But then we really broke it down to uh, looking at, at migrant markets. So there's a huge Latino population uh, in the States, certainly when you look at cities such as Miami, LA, um, so what can we do to really appeal to that market who are constantly sending remittance between, uh, you know, the US and Mexico, US and Colombia, US and Cuba? Um, that's a huge market for us as well. So we were able through this Bible to understand, OK, here's how we market it. Here's how it really works. But then we were able to then really break that down and say, well, here's how we're going to market it to, you know, European expats living in the US and Americans who do just travel. But also, let's not forget about this huge segment here uh, as well. So. I think taking that very granular approach has been super important and allowing local teams to have freedom to say, okay, we're going to take a bit of this, but we're also going to slice it up and implement this because the US is a bit of a unique market. And then equally, just from the general product perspective, if we want people, we can go in with a P2P argument, right? But then Venmo is super dominant in the US. Um, and a lot in, you know, is that really enough to say to someone, hey, we do the same thing, switch to us. I'm not entirely convinced. So there needs to be that USP. There has to be that clear thing that drags someone into the funnel so that you can then cross-sell them and let them know about all the other features that you're offering. So for the US, given that it's so uh, credit and points focused, what partnerships and integrations can we do uh, that's going to entice people to come in? Is it that every single morning Revolut gives all US customers a free coffee from Dunkin' Donuts or somewhere like that? So there's, you know what I mean? And that might sound a little bit silly, but um, these things can work. And then when we look at it from a cashback perspective, you know, perhaps because interchange is so much higher in the US, we can be more competitive uh, with existing uh, features in the market as well. So um, that's sort of that's a challenge. And even from a marketing perspective, I, I don't think the US is too drastically different from the UK. I think you can have a similar tone, you can say similar things, have a clear call to action. Um, I don't think there needs to be much change there. But when I look at Asia, for example, certainly when we look at Singapore, it's a far more conservative market, right? So they're not really interested in the gimmicky emojis and, the, and, and, and things like this. Maybe they just want clear cut answers. Um, so we've been working really close with the team there and then comparing it to Australia and the US and really seeing disparities as we go forward. And I think we've been testing a lot. Um, the waiting lists have been super popular and, and great for us, not just from a marketing perspective, but equally from a testing perspective. I've been able, and, and the team have really been able, through our email strategy, through our push notifications, look at every aspect of comms that we send out to customers and understand what they like and what they don't like. And by utilizing that waiting list, we've been able to get a lot of beta testing done and really understand, okay, we need to completely ditch this, this sort of way of looking at it and we need to come at it from this perspective so um no it's all it's all great stuff and i was actually going to ask a question about how you how you test because i really believe that that the best marketing or the best marketing approach is equal parts art and science is kind of what i say so you need kind of like that idea and that theory of whether it's the cultural way into a certain market or an idea that you think is going to work really well as a campaign or what you think people want but you need to balance that with actually the data coming yeah. back from what what you're putting into market from both your advertising and the usage of your product by the way i love that you use the word playbook 
Could I, I use that all the time and people tell me that it's like too American of a phrase. So nah. heard it here. I, I'm going to keep using the word playbook. Great. But I think the, um, the global local conversation is something that all CMOs, marketing teams struggle with. Do you go global and set kind of one thing that your brand stands for, the kind of playbook and push that down to every market? Or do you go local and decentralize and build it bottom up? And really what I'm getting from you, which is what I believe as well, is like it's both. Yeah. It's not one or the other. It has to be both. You have to have the things that you believe are uh, important for your brand to represent no matter where it is in the world, but then match that and leave space for the local teams and the local market to build kind of bottom up and fill in those gaps with what they know is most relevant to the users in that country. I agree. And I think even from another perspective looking at it is, is you may have limitations in markets, right? Because licensing and regulation is different everywhere. So I would love to say, yeah, tomorrow Revolut is launching an identical feature that we have in Europe straight into the US. But that's not possible, right? Or it's not possible initially because you have to apply for different licenses. You have to go through the regulatory system. It may be that you there's no such thing as an EMI license in the US, right? So you have to partner with the bank and maybe there's limitations there as to what you can do based on the agreement you have. So I think that's the other thing we've really had to understand is that we can't just pick it up here and drop it there. We have to understand, okay, what can we do the same? What can't we? And how can we fill those voids um, that, that solve local problems for real people? Um, so I think that, yeah, as you say, we I have a term uh, that we use, and I actually stole it from someone in the company, but it's just that the unquantified life is not worth living, right? It's that I, I find a lot of, mark, not just marketers, but generally people rely on often on opinions and emotions. In my views, it's not worth it. You're going to put all this time and effort into something that you don't really know if it's going to work. But at least if you have some foundation there, which is clear-cut data showing people want this, people don't want this, people like this, people don't like that, that's a pretty good starting point to do, right? And then you don't just stop. A lot of people then stop there and think, great, I've got some answers. But as you start to go through iterations of like re- releasing things or, or making slight changes, you go back to them. And then you compare that initial data from the data you have now and you hopefully you know, get to that final recipe that you're looking for. Um, and sure, it's a little bit boring for some people. The analytical side, maybe they, they see themselves as purely creative marketers and, and, and that spooks them a little bit. But um, I think that's been my biggest challenge I think for any marketer, right, when you scale in an organization and you've got to up, you've got to upskill yourself as well as your team and your processes. And sure, it's stressful. It's boring. You suddenly think, God, I've got to type all these policy documents. I've got to have all these strategy documents. I've got to have guidelines for these 12 things. It's it, it can the pressure can get to you and, and you can see yourself being less hands on. Um, but ultimately, you are. It's no longer about you as an individual and, and, and being that front face and, 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 and leading on campaigns. It's more about you setting up the company and your team and other teams for success. And that, that whole aspect is often not spoken about in, in, in the field of marketing. It's very much just about what campaigns you're doing, how much money you're putting here. But it's really important to understand the real hard work that a lot of marketers and comms professionals have to go through uh, when you're experiencing that super high growth scale period. Yeah. On the, uh, the so the, Art and science piece, the ideas and the data, is super interesting. And I think any marketer in 2020 is dealing with that in one way or another, whether they're coming more from the creative end of the spectrum where they want to be idea-led or whether they're coming more from the quant and the math end of the spectrum and they want to be data-driven. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm, you know, it sounds like you're much more kind of on the data side of the spectrum, but let me ask, is there a role or how does, it, how does that role manifest for more of like the ideas and the creativity and the opinions within Revolut Marketing right now? Yeah, I think you hit it before, which is it's a hybrid, right? Uh, I think you've you know where possible, um, you you have that data, uh, you have that that numbers and that and, and that data that you need in order to execute successfully. But there are times where you maybe just want to take a risk, you want to try something new, you want to have a new brand message, and maybe you haven't got the data or it's not possible to get it for whatever reason. So 
I always say I'm 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 sort of a a risk-taking marketer, and I think a lot of people probably agree with that. Um, <laughs> and I don't think it's a bad thing. You're never always going to get it right. Um, but I think, you know, if you've got super creative people who, you know, are constantly coming up with ideas and want to try and test new things, that's great. And I think t- the, the easiest way to simplify this is if you're planning to go down the artistic route and you just want to try something out, maybe for whatever reason you don't have data to begin with, but once you launch it, you will. Right, because you'll be able to assess that campaign or that marketing that you did. Really look at the numbers and say, did anything change? Did anything move? Was this successful here, but super bad there? And I've been in those situations where you know I've I've led a campaign um, that you know has looked great from a, a user acquisition perspective and maybe from a brand perspective to an extent. But then there's also been some negative sentiment there where it hasn't gone down so well. And you have to sit on that fence and think, okay, well, look, it's not all bad. It's not all good. Let's understand where what went what went good, what went wrong. So you can actually get that data and I often find that can be super valuable assuming you know it doesn't all go to hell um, as well so again fine tune the balance so so uh, one of the recent campaigns you have out is the some pay others revolute campaign was that data driven did that come from an insight or was that more idea led and then you're looking at the data of how it's performing exactly so for me when you go to, I want it to become like a verb. I want it to become like people will all, and, it, and believe me when I say it's happening, when people say like, oh, just rev me. Um, and, and that's a good thing, right? It's good from a brand perspective. Um, I mean, I, I've lost count of the amount of people who've like, oh, I said rev me. I was at a football game the other week. We were splitting the bill and someone was like, oh, uh, rev me. And I was like, oh, I do have Revolut, but I've never heard you, you know, say it that way. So for us, I mean, I think the closest example would be if you look at like Venmo in the US, right? People don't say, oh, send me the money. They'll say, oh, send me the money on Venmo or Venmo me, right? Yeah. Um, so we're trying to do the same thing and it's working incredibly well in, in certainly in a few markets. We've been sort of setting up a lot of, uh, a lot of listening tools, both on social media and, and certain forums that are super popular, really monitoring markets ac- across Europe from you know, Ireland to France to Poland and trying to see, is this being picked up? We're even trying to tweak the copy within the app and the product to you know, constantly have it in front of people's mind. And I think that's the only way to achieve that verb, right? Sure, we can go and do a nice little fancy campaign in the ads, uh, the tubes, right? But again, you're, you don't know who you're reaching, right? There's no real way to quantify who you're reaching in, uh, in that sense. Um, but there really is when it comes to the communication that you're sending to customers or the external communication you have in the app. So we've made a real effort to make sure with, with all the automated emails that we send out in relation to peer-to-peer transfers that, you know, RevMe is in there um, from in the app perspective that RevMe is there. Um, so, yeah, I think it's... Um, it doesn't necessarily mean it's it'll work in every market and every single person who has Revolut says, oh, RevMe. Um, but we are seeing, you know, increase after increase from our social listening tools um, of people referring to it um, in that way. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a, a good thing. And I don't think it's, as I said, it's nothing new. It's nothing special, right? There's tons of brands, Venmo is an example, who are doing it. Um, but I think it's not necessarily a difficult thing to achieve if you already have the scale and the customer acquisition. It's just more of an educational project from your side to ensure that you're putting that 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 term and that all into their uh into their minds so uh yeah i'll uh i don't have the numbers to heart uh but it certainly is um from a central european perspective becoming uh you know the norm for people to say rev me yeah makes sense so i'm curious to hear a little bit more about how you think about your media mix um so you know focus group one anecdotally i see a lot of um you know out of home uh, offline media. I'm sure you're doing a lot in digital as well, but how do you, if it is kind of very data-driven and you're trying to quantify the success of the campaigns, how do you close that loop in some of those 
more offline media where you might not have hard data to actually go on? Or is it just a question of you, you want that equity from doing above-the-line campaigns and you want that scale that maybe it can bring? Yeah, I think I think when I look at offline marketing in particular, so when you look at you know people who advertise on the tube or on buses, I see it as more brand than I do as as marketing. So when I think of like marketing, I'm thinking customer acquisition, um, and I, ju- I just don't think it's 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 accepted enough for to put a, a shit ton of money into offline ads and you know tell your senior management that yeah we're going to get I'm projecting we're going to get a ten percent increase in growth but then you can't actually prove that I think it undermines marketing um, so I I often try and say that you know, we we do. I'd say we do offline marketing periodically, uh, and it's usually based on a brand campaign. So last year we launched our, our rainbow cards during Pride Month, which were hugely successful. Um, and we knew that, you know, given that you know Pride London is home to the biggest Pride in, in the world, I think, um, there was a great opportunity for us to really get that card out there, get that awareness out there. So, you know, we partnered with some really um, leading LGBT influencers. We went on the ads, we promoted the cards, but I wasn't sat there saying, guys, this is going to bring us X percent customer acquisition. I was like, it potentially could and we'll look at the data on the days to see if you know signups in London spike that day and we can put that organic growth and, and place it there but I can't actually draw a definitive line um, so for me I'm willing to sit there and say look this you know we are a brand we have a community we have an obligation uh, to give back to our customers to give back to society therefore we can justify not only doing these projects like our donations features and pride cards and other things um, but equally in investing that back into the market and saying, hey, we're doing this, it's super exciting, that benefits the company, it benefits our customers, good causes, it's a win-win-win. So for me personally, um, rightly or wrongly, uh, some will disagree, some don't, I try and move them aside and focus our offline there. However, um, it is often the way now, now that we have a lot of individual marketing leads per product at Revolut, we take a very granular approach. So it may be that, you know, with our commission-free trading platform, we have a a lead marketer for that team and they've decided actually we do want to go on the tubes and we want to target stations like Bank in Liverpool Street and Canary Wharf because that's where we think the traders will come um, and and they'll choose to put their budget there. So there isn't like a hard line. It's very much that we'll build where necessary a local growth function per product across the company. Um, They'll be allocated their own budget. They'll be allocated their own KPIs that they need to hit and how they choose to spend it. Obviously, there's a playbook there, uh, but how they choose to spend it is up to them. But me personally, um, I prefer to focus on more things that are quantifiable. um, But it doesn't mean to say that things like PR in the media and um, offline marketing uh, isn't valuable and can't contribute to yeah. you. So it's kind of the both that we were talking about before with the top down and the bottom up. So you have the playbook and that framework with your team as it's scaling and different product lines and geos that they have to use. But then you sounds like you give them a certain amount of autonomy to make decisions for what they think is best yeah. for their product or their demographic. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about what's going well. Uh, can we hear a little bit about like what's maybe not going well or learnings that you've had, uh, things that you would do differently next time around? Yeah, I think um, one thing I've identified about fintech companies, um, and and actually tech companies generally, um, is that when they're very small, um, they typically hire a more inexperienced team, right? They don't have the big budgets to hire, you know, super successful, experienced people, um, but they hire really often more than not. They hire sort of young, creative, super intelligent people, right? That's what I've seen as a pattern when I've reviewed a lot of fintechs and employees who started in 2015, 16. Um, and, and I guess I would fall into that bracket to a fair extent, right? I'm, I'm 28 years old. Um, and I think the biggest learning 
was scale. It was without question the, the, the one area that's, that stressed me out the most. Um, I've always known I was creative. I know I can execute. Uh, I know I, I could manage a small team. And then suddenly, you know, you're launching in 10 markets, 11 markets, 12, 13. And it's like, we've got to have processes for this. We've got to have uh, hiring uh home tasks and, and marking scorecards and all this kind of stuff. And I just kind of felt bombarded at one point. I was like, holy shit. And I looked at some other teams who were quite good and they had hired like a, a really good team around them to help them build these processes. And I found myself quite late to the game. I found that from managing both marketing and communications, which in my view should always be treated separately. I, I hate when marketers say, yeah, marketing comms, same thing. Absolutely not. Uh, certainly as you scale as a business. Um, I just found myself bombarded and I was like, crap, I'm going to have to stay here all night uh, typing up 10 policy documents for this. And then I've got to localize that to this market. And on top of that, I've got to hire five people here. I found myself like 60% of my my time was interviewing. And then the other 40%, I was supposed to do my day job and do the admin. And it was my own fault, right? Because I didn't scale quick enough. I didn't find the right people around me from a core function who could help me do this. Um, And I think a little bit of that was not only like, I think learning and experience as you do, but it's, it's inevitable that, you know, Revolut was scaling incredibly fast. And I always say, um, you know, I'm good friends with Monzo, uh, Tristan from Monzo, and we always have a laugh back and forth. And I always make the point of saying that we often get compared the same in terms of like Revolut, Monzo, or, or, or Chad and Tristan, whatever. But I've always said that no one's really picked up the fact that we've had it a bit more difficult. Uh, because we're not just a UK company. We're not speaking one language with a really sort of what I'd call simple product, right? A, 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 a digital current account. Um, you know, we're a product that's launched in 30 markets across Europe. Eastern Europe is super different to Western Europe, right? And Northern Europe. So we've had to adapt to all those, lo- all those local cultures, all those local languages. We've got to, f- had to sort of fine tune a strategy and hire good people in all these markets. And we all doing that while maintaining our brand and our tone uh, and trying to find that balance. And now we're doing it in Singapore and, 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 in, and in the US and Canada and Japan, Australia. So I, I've often sat there and it's not plugging my own horn. It's very much just the fact that, you know, it would have been a lot easier for me if we were just a UK only company uh, with a fairly simple product. But then we started doing things like crypto and stock trading and insurance and all these different things. So suddenly you've now got to have strategies for all those features. We did our premium and metal accounts. They've been hugely successful. And I, I firmly believe Revolut has led the way when it comes to subs- subscription-based banking. Um, but that's hard in itself, right? How do you encourage people to go from having a standard account to paying six ninety nine for premium or even ahead going further and paying twelve ninety nine for metal? And and how and what do those strategies look like? How do they differentiate between between one each other? So, for me, that whole having to to upskill yourself as well as your team in such a short space of time and during such hyper growth. Um, I, if I wish, if I could have started, if I'd known a lot of what I know now, I could have made life a lot easier for myself. Um, and that's um, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. But for me, it's you know, re- just really focus on, on on scale and operations and process because it often gets neglected until it's not too late, but you're essentially just going to make life really difficult for yourself. Well, we're getting Tristan on season one as well, so we can ask his opinion about it too. And get the gloves out. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're recording this in early 2020. When you think about 2020 and just the roadmap in front of you, what are some things that you're working on now that you're most excited about? Uh, so we've got some super exciting things coming, uh, one of which uh, is tomorrow. Um, and essentially it's, um, how much detail can I go into? Uh, it's a savings feature, uh, where we're actually going to offer super competitive rates to our customer base, uh, in a super flex, flexible, uh, and easy access way. 
Um, I think one thing I've always prided Revolut in doing is making something so simple from a user experience perspective. I think if you look at our travel insurance that we offer, you know, you get a ping as you reach the airport and then it's paper day, right? So you can turn it on and turn it off. And people were like, wow, no paperwork. I'm not being held down to four or six weeks. It's not full of terms and conditions. I tap on, tap off when I want to. And when I get to an airport, you give me a ping to remind me, which is pretty cool. So we're doing the same thing from a savings perspective and that drops tomorrow. And I'm convinced, I mean, one of our biggest goals right now in Revolut is, is increasing, of course, daily and weekly act, uh, act, uh, daily and weekly activation. So ensuring that more and more of our users are using us on a daily weekly, and weekly basis. Um, and I'm pleased to say we're now doing that on the majority basis. Um, but there's still so much more we can do. And I'm convinced that this savings product, which is coming tomorrow, uh, is, is going to do that. Uh, it's really going to start bringing the crowds, not only because it's competitive uh, and it's a real way for people to, to be more financially literate, literate from a savings perspective, but purely because of the ease of access and how simple we make it. Um, so that's all I'll say there, but uh, keep an eye on the media tomorrow. All will be revealed. I think the other one for me is Revolut Junior. Um, so we've been talking about this for about uh, six to eight months now, maybe longer. Uh, I get in trouble all the time for like speaking about things too soon. But... Um, there's a huge pro there's a huge problem we can solve as well, which is you know providing accounts for kids, and that can be from sort of seven years old up until seventeen. I think when you look at a lot of the banks that and what they offer, it's just gimmicky, right? It's like yeah, get your kid to sign up with us, and they'll get a, a Barney the dinosaur squeezy toy. Like seriously, um, whereas what we want to do is think. Not only can we provide a really fun and, and, and entertaining way for kids to learn about money, but equally we can embed that into their parents' account. So whenever they need pocket money or top them up, they can do that from the app. Whenever they want to restrict uh, that they can't buy booze and they can't buy all these other kind of things, they can restrict that. And that's super cool that that parent can have some control as well. Obviously, probably for the younger sort of age bracket, I'm sure when you're 15, 16, you don't want you know your mum and your dad putting your pocket money in determining... Uh, what you can and can't spend your money on. I know I didn't. Um, but that for me is is, is super exciting And because then what feeds into that is we've got a huge job to do on financial education. Um, that's an opportunity for us to really make sure that through content that's deeply embedded within the kids app that we can teach them about things, about what is an overdraft, how does it work, what's a credit score, how does it work. We can actually start leveraging that and building up their sort of literary skills from a finance perspective, but in a fun and engaging way. And we're trying to work on how best to do that. You know, is it, is it just boring text or are we doing it through video? Are we maybe going to get really interesting influencers that these kids love and, and admire to come in and, and film it with us and do it with us? There's so many cool things we can do um, and then not only do we have a huge customer base I think I was saying before that you know the average age of our customers like between 32 and 35 so it's a slightly more older and more matured um, audience than say you know just entire 80 percent students for example but a lot of these people may have kids or are planning to have kids and there's a great sell where we can say hey we now have a junior app and here's how this benefits you and your child um, so yeah, I think for me, and then of course it's about acquisition as well, because if you get these kids from like, you know, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, all the way up to their 17, chances are when they're 18 years old and the tap of a button, they can convert their Revolut Junior account into a Revolut Fool account. So you've actually got a clear long-term automated strategy in place of how you retain those customers going forward. Um, and hopefully if you delight them as much as we hope we do, uh, that should be uh, pretty convincing. Yeah, and that's a big part of how a lot of people... Um end up with the bank accounts that they do, at least from a high street uh, mm. kind of incumbent perspective, is it's the one that their parents had. It's the one that they were introduced to when they were seven, eight, or nine. And I think the financial education piece of it is so important, just in general, 
for definitely UK society, US where I'm from, I really wish that there were more, you know, the education system is one side of it, but even more companies that were pushing that and offering it as the father of three kids who are starting to kind of get to that level of talking about allowances and pocket money and things yeah. like that. It needs to come with the education that I think should start really early. Uh, so is there is there a timeline of when, when you're going to have something official to announce on that? Yeah, so uh, we've tried to be quite transparent with this. Um, we've been doing a hell of a lot of beta testing. We've brought um, parents and their kids into the office uh, and done like testing there and then, which has been quite fun. And we've, you know, had like a kids party while that's been going on and brought in like entertainers and things, which is super cool. Um, so we're sort of aiming to hopefully have something to go to market in March, uh, which would be really cool. And of course, it will come in phases. We're not saying everything's going to be ready from get-go. Uh, what we want to do is really make sure that we're able to get something out of March and really get people testing it and trying it and then build on it from there. And like every product in Revolut, we now have a dedicated team focused on it. So one thing I love about Revolut, it's very focused. So a lot of times you can find a company that's got a bunch of engineers and they're multitasking different things or they're being grabbed for this and grabbed for that. We basically treat it, imagine like little SWAT teams. So like our, our commission-free trading team, they have like their front-end engineers, their back-end engineers, they have their project manager, they have their own marketer, they're on this person and they're dedicated to that product not just for launch but going forward and it's the same thing with Revolut Junior which is good because it means that it's not going to get neglected and just left after it's launched that they're constantly going to be looking at the data iterating it getting the feedback improving it so yeah March uh, watch this space amazing so that'll be just around when this episode comes out so we'll see if it's a past tense future tense type thing Don't but quote that's me. great um, so before we wrap up real quick one and two for the marketers that are listening to this would be great to hear a few of your sources of inspiration from the world of marketing yeah i am um, i always find that a lot of marketers or just people generally in tech they have so much to say in this space around they have like five books they tell you to read and they have these people i don't like the one book that i've read that I found super interesting was Blitzscaling by Reid Hoffman. Um, and it obviously has contributions. I don't know, have you seen it? Have you read no, it? No, no, it's actually on my list though. Yeah, it's, I mean, I've got it if you don't want to buy it. I'm more than happy to post it over. But um, I'm not saying everything in there is right, but it just gives you such a deep understanding into Blitzscaling your customer acquisition and hyper growth times. Um, so for me, that book has really helped me shape my strategy as, as, as we go forward and, and expand into new markets. Um, so I'd certainly recommend that. Um, not to plug it, but I listen to 11FS podcast every time it comes out. It's always got, what I like is it's always got like a mix of different people, right? You've got some marketing people in there, some product people, you've maybe got a VC. Um, and it's really good for me to get those wider perspectives. And I think the two things I've, the two things I've learned as a, as a marketing comms professional is you have to upskill yourself beyond your own department. Um, if you want to have a front seat at the table of a company and, and you want to be taken seriously beyond your remit, you have to make sure you're being seen, you have to make sure you're being heard and that you can have an input and opinion in wider areas of the business. And that's one thing I'd recommend to anyone. I think sometimes people really do just lock themselves into their own remit and don't think, actually, I've got more to contribute here. I'll give you a prime example, like as someone who looks after the comm side of Revolut as well, you know, there's risk to the business there. So I'm always making sure that I'm meeting up with people across, you know, people from our CRO to other people in the company making sure that I'm present and I can have a conversation there because I've got input and I think you'll learn so much more as a marketing comms professional when you have such a broad oversight of the business the direction that it's going in what people are thinking so I'd say like sure read the books you want to read and watch the podcast you want to uh, you want to watch but start investing more time on a weekly basis meeting people in the business that you 
traditionally wouldn't meet. It doesn't matter how senior they are. Hopefully you don't work in a company that's full of politics and, and sort of dick waving that everyone thinks they're too important to meet with someone else. But just really focus on that because it's given me such a wider business perspective. And as someone who at some point in the near future hopes to do his own startup, I now have such a broader set of skills um, from doing that. Uh, and, and hopefully people embrace it, right? If you're showing an interest in their area and hopefully the, the work and the input you have will equally be acknowledged as a marketing comms professional because I think marketing and comms has never been more important today in a business than it has been before. That's a bold statement, right? But I firmly believe that in the digital age that we that we now, the more opinionated age that we now live in, um, it, it, I believe marketing and comms should always have a front seat at the table. And there are still a lot of companies out there who maybe look at it as a bit of a joke or don't see that it, it, has, a, it has a place, but not a place right at the front. And I hope to see that change across more and more companies. That's my advice. Yeah, that's so. great. So last question, who else do you think we should get on the show, maybe for season two of FinTech Marketing Podcast? Oh, do you know what? Just because I don't know enough, just get someone from fronted on here because they're, they're just keeping it all too under wraps and I know they're probably bouncing term sheets and, and, and doing this kind of stuff but they've got a lot of explaining to do uh, I think there's um, some really good little hints you know new Gucci logos and stuff but I want to I want to get a deeper feel so I think Jamie's he's the he's like the BD marketing guy right so uh, I think if he's happy to come away from you know his hipster barber shop and spend some time in here uh, that'd be good for everyone. So that wraps up today's FinTech Marketing Podcast. Thank you so much to Chad for joining me. Where can people find out more about you and Revolut? Oh, uh, I've got the most embarrassing Twitter handle. It's at Chad West Tweets. Uh, and on LinkedIn, uh, I publish more content on LinkedIn. Uh, Twitter is full of trolls and it's a horrible place. So I, I, I stick more to LinkedIn. So uh, yeah. Me too. I'll see you out there. So thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about 11FS, head on over to 11FS.com. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode of the FinTech Marketing Podcast. And please, 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 if you enjoyed the content today and my conversation with Chad, please do leave us a review and share the podcast with other people that you think would find it valuable. Seeing as this is the first season, would really love the support of the community to get the word out there. And as always, please do let us know what you thought of today's episode. You can find us on Twitter or LinkedIn at 11FS or email us directly at podcasts at 11FS.com. We'll have more episodes for you very soon. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.